Back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we take the year of 2014 and try to understand better the practice of Mormon plural marriage. Now, today we're going to be talking about a subject that might have to take a few episodes. It's going to be a long subject. It's a subject that particularly interests me because I feel like there are so many amazing interesting, kind of crazy, sometimes scary stories of frontier Mormonism that we know a lot about in some ways, but we also don't know a lot about. So if you're a budding Mormon historian and you want to find some real jewels of stories, I would suggest that you start researching the women of Southern Utah that lived in Southern Utah plural families. Like I said, we know a little bit because of the research that has been done. There's been a lot of great research about colonizing what they would call Dixie, but this is a very vast, expansive subject, and I'm just going to briefly touch on some of the towns. I'm going to be missing a lot, unfortunately. I should have called this a decade of polygamy so we could fit it all in, But in order to get to some of the more contemporary issues, I feel a little bit rushed. I could talk about Southern Utah polygamy all the live long day. There are so many great, fantastic, fascinating stories. And we're just going to get into a few of them tonight. So we're going to talk about Southern Utah and how it affected Mormonism. And the spoiler alert is it really affects Mormonism. There is a lot of stuff happening in Southern Utah. So stick with us and you're going to learn some shocking things. I'm going to go ahead and attach a trigger warning to this. There are going to be some subjects that are really, really difficult, really violent to talk about. So um, as we're talking about Southern Utah, just consider it your big old trigger warning. Here's what you need to know about Utah. It was basically settled in about four stages, anywhere from 1847 when the saints arrived to 1857. So it took about 10 years to really get the movement going and to colonize Southern Utah. And basically, it contained anything from the north-south line of the settlements of the Wasatch Front and Wasatch Plateau to the south, from Cache Valley on the Idaho border to the Utah's Dixie on Arizona's border. And then part of the settlement was Salt Lake and Weber Valleys in 1847 and 1848. And then there were colonies that were founded in Tooele and Sam Pete Valleys in 1849. In Box Elder, Pavant, Juab, and Parowan Valleys, those were founded in about 1851, and Cache Valley would be 1856. Settlements in all of these valleys, as early settlers would call them, would multiply with the immigration. And the immigration really started coming heavily in the 1850s. The first expansion would be southward, going from Utah Valley um, immediately south of Salt Lake Valley. And it was settled by about 30 families in the spring of 1849. Within a year of arriving in, you know, in Utah, the population had grown to 2,026 people. And 
So picture Salt Lake as sort of this starting point and everything expanding outward. Brigham would settle everything, which was the Mexican territory at the time. He was sending people all the way up to Canada and all the way down to Mexico. And we occupied a lot of Nevada and California. So we were expansive. In 1849, 50 families were called to settle San Pete Valley. That's where a lot of my family is from which is sort of south of Utah Valley, and it's like modern-day Nephi, Fountain Green, uh, Manti, all of that, San Pete Valley. And uh, some of them would go down to the border of Arizona, 300 miles south. Over a three-month period, the expedition covered approximately 800 miles, and the people that were settling were also taking note of water and the topography of the land and all of that. Brigham had big ideas for this land. One of the important colonies that would expand in southern Utah was Parowan. This settlement served a dual purpose. It was sort of the halfway station between Southern California and Salt Lake Valley, and it was also meant to be sort of this agricultural center. Southern Utah, they, they learned, could be a really great place for farming certain things. And Brigham Young was no dummy. He would make good use of this. They also found a lot of iron ore in what we would consider Cedar City today. There were thousands of acres of cedar trees, which they could use as fuel. We're going to talk about a call that would happen in 61, but there was a call in 1850 of July where 167 people were sent with equipment and supplies to Parowan to plant crops and prepare to work with the Pioneer Iron Mission, which would be established at Cedar City later in the year. Basically, this colony would be the nucleus of a dozen settlements. And I know it's confusing. I'm giving you a lot of names and dates. But think of the South as a way for saints to, to see all of these new resources coming in that they needed. Brigham really wanted to keep outsiders out, and that meant trading with outsiders. So the saints had a problem. How are they going to get things like cotton to make clothing? How are they going to get, you know, things, any sort of supplies that they, that they depended on from the outside world? Brigham's solution was to make it themselves. There were about 90 settlements um, that were founded in what we now consider Utah in the first 10 years of 1847. There was Wellsville and Menden in the north to Washington counties and Santa Clara in the south. I'm just going to give you some dates of these population centers and where, when they were founded. So Salt Lake City was founded in 1847. Bountiful was founded in 1847. Ogden in 1848. West Jordan in 1848, Kaysville in 1849, Provo in 1849, Manti in 1849, Tooele, Represent, 1849, Brigham City, 1851, Parowan, 1851, Nephi, 1851, Fillmore, 1851, Cedar City, 1851, Beaver, 1851, Wellsville, 1856, and Washington, 1856. And of course, there were two sort of types of colonizing. There was direct and non-direct. So direct was when they were given a call and they were specifically meant to go out and colonize an area. And then non-direct were, you know, someone would go south and establish a colony and then people would just follow. Some of them were really organized and some were not. Some were just kind of accidental. When the LDS church was colonizing certain areas, they would appoint a leader to do it. It was an important calling, and it was usually given by the president of the church. And 
it would be a mission call. So you'd be called on a mission to go settle a certain area and you would be called to raise certain crops or do certain jobs. So you might be called to go make peace with certain Indian uh, tribes, which was what Jacob Hamlin was often called to do. Or you might be called to raise livestock or mine coal or or make like a halfway station for travelers. So you would all have a really important job to do. And when you would do it, you would bring others with you, often your family members, and you would build your homes really close together in what we now consider called Mormon forts. They're not forts by anything of the imagination that we would think big, huge structures that were meant to be really protective of danger, but they were meant to protect of danger. They were basically homes built next to each other with a large fence and um, a way to sort of protect themselves from wild animals, and aggressive outsiders. When the Mormons entered Salt Lake Valley in 1847, Brigham Young realized right away that they would need food and supplies. And he really wanted them, like I said, to become independent. And so he started experimenting really early on with certain types of crops. He sent an exploration in the 1850s, like I talked about, to Santa Clara and the Virgin River Basins, which were 300 miles south of Salt Lake City. Because they were at a lower altitude and the weather is a lot different, they had the potential to grow cotton, grapes, figs, flax, hemp, rice, sugarcane, tobacco, and other really popular products of the time. This is where we get the term Dixie, right? It's Utah's southern settlement, and it really represented the sort of Dixie of the Union at the time. You know, we're in 1850s, Dixie is a popular sort of cultural idea, cotton, tobacco, rice. Now we find that Utah has its own Dixie, so they call it Dixie. By this time, by the, after the conflicts of the Utah War, then we start to see Parowan, New Harmony, Pine Valley, Tokerville, and Santa Clara being established. The mission to Santa Clara was specifically to befriend the Indians, and if you read uh, the new biography of Jacob Hamlin by Todd Compton, A Frontier Life, it really goes into this in detail, and I can't recommend that book enough. It's a fantastic, really in-depth look that, that gives sort of a white male European's perspective of colonizing Indians in sort of a benevolent way. Jacob Hamblin was a very benevolent sort of colonizer, and he had many, many, many interactions with indigenous peoples of Utah, especially southern Utah. Some church members were called to go to Washington County to colonize, and they had specific assignments to grow cotton. They were told that this would be called the Cotton Mission, and while they were there, it was also important um, their job to grow cotton was as important as missionaries that were called to preach the gospel. Some of the settlements that were involved in the cotton mission were Washington, St. George, Heberville, Parowan, Grafton, Hurricane, Santa Clara, Harrisburg, Duncan's Retreat, West Point, Rockville, Millersburg, Schoonsburg, Northrop, Springdale, Gunlock, Harmony, Canara, Hebron, Middleton, Pine Valley, Pintos, Leeds, and more and more and more. Some of these settlements don't exist today, and some of them just involved a few families. Men were called on their missions based on oftentimes either their connections with the brethren or their skills. The first calls 
included 10 families under the leadership of Samuel Adair, and he left Payson March 3, 1857. 28 families were called at the April 1857 conference and came under the direction of Robert Covington, and 50 families arrived at Washington from San Bernardino. They had been told to return to Utah because of the Utah War in 1857, and most stayed for the winter and left in the spring for other locations in Dixie and elsewhere. 300 families were called in the October 1861 conference. So October 1861 is important. Before then, from 47, basically from 1850 expedition on up, there are these little calls here and there going on. But in the October 1861 conference, this would be... A big deal. This would be the year the Civil War cut off cotton supplies. And so Brigham Young makes a specific call to people to really expand southern Utah. Now, this is important if you have any Swiss pioneers in your family. There's a very high likelihood that you come from southern Utah because 30 families of Swiss converts were included in the call and then they would often colonize in southern Utah. They were directed to settle in Santa Clara and provide supplies for the cotton farmers. By 1862, 220 families were called and 50 or 60 families were called in 1864. At least 300 additional families, around a 1,000 people, were called in the late 60s and 70s. So I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of families are being called to colonize here. They arrive in Salt Lake City, or they might be already living in Salt Lake City, and they're called to go settle and grow cotton in southern Utah. The cotton mission was a big deal. The Covington Company arrives in May of 1857. Isaac B. Haight was presiding over the Parowan Stake, and he organized the new set settlement of the branch of the Harmony Ward. They would have civic and religious leaders sustain. Uh, the stake president would usually be the one organizing this. The pioneers uh, prepared to ground corn and went to work making dams and ditches, and it was really rough. They lived in tents, wagons, or dugouts. And some of the saints from England would say that when they come to southern Utah from their lush green lands and they come to southern Utah and the rocks are red, they felt like the earth was on fire. And they saw it as a sort of burning Zion. I mean, Zion was this new, really foreign place. The rocks were red. The dirt was red. Pink eye was everywhere because the dust storms were so bad. And so they saw this as like their new fiery Zion. It would not be easy to live in southern Utah. Many of the converts from the south would be familiar with cotton, but not familiar with irrigation. And they had to cope with the alkali in the sandy soil. There was always this problem with the flooding Virgin River. They would build dams on quicksand bottoms, and they would wash out several times each year. One year there was a drought, and grasshoppers and worms consumed all the crops. And they had to have night watches to protect hungry animals. And there's this great story um, later on that I think I think it involved John D. Lee, if my memory serves, where Brigham Young issued sort of this challenge for them to hunt wild game, and they wanted to see the, the men would organize themselves in companies and see how many coyotes they could kill, how many of these sort of animals that threatened their crops could kill. And they had a contest, and I can't remember the numbers, but it was like an atrocious amount of numbers that they brought home all these pelts and skins. It became a contest to protect their crops. Growing cotton would be the easy part, but they 
quickly found out that to survive, they had to grow their own food and make do. I mean, they literally had nothing there. Things were cut off from, from the east, and Brigham made sure it was that way, too, to protect any sort of trade coming in for a time. Many would quit the mission. By June 1861, only 20 families would remain in Washington. Later that year, the community would receive a new number of settlers, but most of them were from San Pete County, sort of fleeing their own mission and hoping the South, even further South, had more to offer. One historian said, quote, just to have a few fresh arrivals to share their miseries must have made the burden lighter, end quote. In 1862, the arriving cotton missionaries settled in what is now called St. George. Not just the weather, but there were other challenges. There were a lot of uh, native tribes living in the area, and they forced the colonists to sort of neglect their crops. Often because of certain uh, conflicts in the area, there would be entire towns that would have to be abandoned, and homes and crops would be left because it just wasn't safe. There was always a shortage of cash. Uh, there was, at times, paper money was printed for temple and factory work, which really was not acceptable anywhere except for Mormon businesses. So it worked if you stayed in Utah um, or anywhere where you could access the Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution or ZCMI. One of the motivators that kept them going was granting subsidies out of tithing resources to construct a tabernacle and a temple in St. George. These were considered public work projects, so mines in Nevada and in Leeds, Utah, provided markets for pioneers' produce, which included grapes for wine. Now remember, saints would drink and make wine in 1860s. This was not something that was considered against the word of wisdom at the time. So they're struggling to grow cotton. They're struggling to to produce their own goods. They're trying to make their own wine. They're trying to grow tobacco. They're having limited success with these things. The weather is terrible. It's harsh conditions. Many of them are not used to the strange red rock country. There are harsh conflicts with indigenous people often, and there's the ever-increasing threat of outsiders in the late 50s and 60s the federal government was always a problem. It was not fun to live in southern Utah. So why did so many polygamous families live there? Was it because they were specifically called? Or do you think that polygamous families were drawn there? Polygamy really permeated so much of the southern settlements. The most likely explanation might lie in the process in which the church called settlers to colonize the southern frontier. Ideally, in the 1861 call, we should see a lot of polygamous families being called. As we've said in other episodes, that church leaders really connected the priesthood, responsibilities, and callings with plurality. So if you were, if you were up for plural marriage, then leaders knew they could trust you to be up for other things. Historians Bitten and Lamson suggest that, quote, those willing to accept an assignment to, to settle in St. George were very committed Mormons, and that those who remained in St. George after having experienced such conditions firsthand were were more committed still. Very committed Mormons were much more likely to practice polygamy than were others, end quote. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of violence following some of these settlements, and of course, Mountain Meadows happens in the South. We have a lot of conflicts, Indian conflicts. We have murders going on. We have castrations, which I'm going to talk about. 
we have a lot of sort of crazy things going on. And that's not to say they weren't happening in Salt Lake as well, but I think Southern Utah was the perfect frontier recipe for fanaticism. It was a strange country. It was a harsh country. People went there out of a sense of duty to God. The harder it was, the more committed they felt because the, they felt like they were being really tested and tried. They're starving. They are persecuted in their minds. They are really having to stick together on the community and they're limited. Their supplies are limited and a lot of what they do is seen as really important to the livelihood of the rest of the kingdom. So were polygamists more likely than monogamists to receive and accept a mission call to Dixie? And if they were, were they more disposed to remain there despite having to cope with drought and frequent floods among the dirty Virgin River? I think so, yes. I think that there is a good case for that, especially during the Mormon Reformation, where these sort of attitudes of polygamy were strongly encouraged, coupled with your responsibility. Now, I'm going to link to some essays that really do a great job. There's uh, Ben Benyon's essay about the ages of plural marriages. They, I think they compare St. George to like Pennsylvania or something. And then we have also another essay by Jesse Embry that seeks to do the same thing. These are really great statistics. So you can see the ages people were marrying, how long uh, people stayed in certain areas. They're really, really valuable. And I'm going to be quoting from some of their, uh, their essays that, which I will be linking. It's basically uh, understood that the first residents ranged in age from 17 to 70, most of the very youngest being bachelors who sometimes served as teamsters on the southward trek, and nearly half or 45% of the newcomers were foreign-born, mainly from the British Isles, but also from Scandinavia and Switzerland. We The numbers are disputed, and there's a lot of research on this, but about 30% of the married men were polygamists. Now, that's, that doesn't mean 30% of the people. That, that means 30% of the married men. Now, remember, men statistics are going to be lots smaller than women because polygamy. Three young men, sons of Brigham Young's brother, Lorenzo Dow, received not only one but two letters in the form of an unexpected mission call a week after the 1861 General Conference. Both notices were addressed to Franklin W. Young, Payson, Utah's new bishop. And the first letter came from Apostle Albert Carrington, quote, to learn whether you and your brother John would like to join the missionary company now being made up of the southern portion of our territory, end quote. Before they could even respond to these calls, a letter signed by Apostle George A. Smith arrived, advising the brothers, who were both young monogamists, that they were appointed on missions to the cotton country. So here we have two important men who are monogamous being called by important leaders. So that does suggest that monogamous were being called as well. They were also joined by their bachelor brother, Lorenzo S., and they started out in a buggy to see the president. Two weeks later, three of them left for Dixie. The marital status, when they were all in their 30s, when called from the Salt Lake area to the Cotton Mission 1861, shows that plurality was not the main motive of leaders, although I do think it was a way to sort of test loyalty. But clearly, this example shows that not all polygamists were called. There were all sorts of people being called. Bachelors, married men who were monogamous, married men who were polygamous. And also, financial status did not matter. 
They had people being called who were poor and who were rich. George A. Smith would tell Jacob Hamlin, the head of Southern Utah's Indian Mission, that the names of those read in the, the October Conference of 1861, quote, is producing no small excitement in this city, as the call embraces the rich as well as the poor. A few rich men who have been named feel to struggle with their possessions and will probably leave their hearts here while their bodies are there, end quote. So let's talk about some of the specific cities. St. George first. St. George would be a big one. St. George was a farming community, and it had a problem. As more saints would show up, it began running out of farmland. Washington County had fewer than two people per square mile, but most of its terrain was wasteland. Only the lowlands within the reach of a few streams were usable for farming. And over 40% of St. George's households were headed by farmers up until in, in around 1870. This caused a problem. They were running out of room. Some say that polygamy would be the answer to this, that if they could divide the population, uh, divide the women and the children into certain lots, then men could have lots and the women would move on to the territory and they wouldn't run out of as many lots because they would be divided amongst men. As settlers go and they're colonizing and they're getting older, they would marry most of their first spouses in the States or in Europe. And when there were no widespread imbalances in the sex ratio to constrain their marriage choices, then they wouldn't have a problem. But as we go to Southern Utah and we're starting to divide land and that's a problem. And so we're giving all the women to men that have the property. Then we run out of women, right? We know that in the early 1860s and later that there's no real sex ratio problem. Unmarried men didn't want to compete solely with other single men for wives, and married men seeking plural wives were also part of the competition. So it wasn't like your regular dating scene. Some say as there became a slow increase of marital competition, immigration really solved that. We talked about that with the Joe Geisner podcast, that you would have wagon trains coming in with immigrants. Many of them were young, and all the men had died off doing all the harsh conditions. And so there would be this increase of women, especially vulnerable, vulnerable young women, who often who had lost their families on the trek or had given up their families or all of their belongings. This kind of helped with the growing ratio imbalance, but it didn't supply all the brides for polygamists, and it didn't stop all the problems. St. George children, as they're being raised in this sort of polygamous environment, would have two sorts of pressures put on them, cultural and circumstantial. They had a lot of pressure to marry soon after maturity. Historically, if you look at this, it's, it's seen as sort of this geograph or this remarkable clustering of marriages in a short age span. The church stood directly behind both kinds of pressure. They advocated for marriage in general and plural marriage in particular. And although marriage elsewhere had become participant run, in St. George it was neither participant run nor family run, but instead church run. The Mormon church had imposed this sort of structure on marriage making and almost mass produced it. And you can read about this in Larry Logue's essay, which I will also link, um, it's, which is called A Time of Marriage, Monogamy, and Polygamy in a Utah Town. 
As President Young decides that St. George should serve as a center of the Cotton Mission, they, you know, they're expanding, they're trying all, all these new operations out. Here's an interesting little side note about the painter of the tabernacle for St. George. Brigham Young recruits the skills of a leading painter from the St. George tabernacle, and his name was Millen. It's actually David Milne, but they pronounced it Millen, who was a Scottish convert. Um, so he sends Millen down there, and he reached Salt Lake City from San Francisco and had done a lot of like interior decorating in New Zealand and all over. Brigham Young says, if you come to Southern Utah, I'll tell you what, your su- your wife Susan, who is terribly ill with tuberculosis, will have her health much improved in Dixie. And it did, sort of, partly due to Millen's decision to hire Anna Catherine Jarvis as a housekeeper. So two years after their arrival, David becomes bishop of the St. George First Ward, and six months later, with his ailing wife's encouragement, he marries his housekeeper as Anna as a second wife. He would also marry a third woman in 1871 without Susan and Anna's sanction. And this wouldn't do so well. This woman that he took on would be seen as incompatible with the other wives. And after his first wife, Susan, dies, David's health worsens. Some people say it's due to his long-time exposure to paint leads. And he he was an alcoholic. The importance of marriage was frequently uh, affirmed in St. George. There were sermons of all kinds coming from the North and, you know, these religious leaders that are setting up there, of course, are reinforcing that. Uh, one church leader exhorted, quote, exhorted the young men and women to get married and fulfill the measure of their creation, for there were tens of thousands of choice spirits every year waiting to tabernacle in the flesh. A St. George resident was told by Erastus Snow, who was the town's ecclesiastical leader, quote, on your way to Salt Lake... When you come back, bring back a wife, end quote. And, of course, the young man did. It was very common for men to leave southern Utah for church business and to come home with a wife, sometimes with their first wife's knowledge and sometimes without. There's a quote from Julie Roy Jeffries in Frontier Woman, the Trans-Mississippi West, that she attributes to Joseph Smith. It says, quote, We shall not marry in heaven, hence it is necessary for us to marry here and to marry as much as we can, for then in heaven a man will take the wives with whom he married on earth. They will be as queens and their children will be subjects, hence we ourselves will be gods, end quote. There's a lot of talk about what the motivations are. Certainly Nauvoo motivations, I think, are different than Utah period and especially southern Utah period motivations. By now, after Orson Pratt's 52 announcement where he does do a lot of, uh, he writes a lot of theology on why he thinks plural marriage is accepted. If this quote from Joseph Smith is true, Joseph Smith is saying, you can't get married in the heavens, so you have to get married on earth. So that, that might have been an idea floating around at the time. Also, the idea that bringing heavenly spirits into tabernacles when this was an idea. Of course, we know from the data now that polygamy actually produced less children per couple than it did in monogamous couples, but the saints wouldn't have seen it that way. They would have seen a man with 50 children as that man has 50 children, and they didn't really realize that it actually brought down the number of children. But they saw it as a way to bring in earthly tabernacles. They also saw it as a way to make them a peculiar people. You know, there's that quote that we read earlier in the series that Brigham Young said, if people are not pointing the finger at us as a peculiar people, then we are not doing the gospel right. So, I mean, in a way, that is the most compelling argument to me because polygamy was really the source of 
a lot, if not most, of the saints' problems. And you can imagine the pressure you would have felt as a monogamous at the time, kind of resenting that, uh, maybe resenting, I, I can imagine resenting that your plural neighbors were bringing a lot of trouble on your heads and yet feeling pressure to be plural yourself or feeling not quite worthy or up to the challenge of plural marriage. There was a doctrine, doctrine spreading that monogamous were less righteous and there was a quote attributed that they were called half Mormons. And at this time, you know, even if you were a monogamous, you were grooming your daughter especially to be taken into plurality. Uh, so one man said that when he proposed to his wife, his first wife, he said, someday I might be a polygamist. And she says, I wouldn't have thought much of you if you didn't become a polygamist. So I, I look at it as a cultural sort of way as in Utah, it was really important for me dating to marry a returned missionary. And I just knew that I wanted to have a returned missionary take me to the temple. And so these young girls have this cultural um, idea being built up that they would be married to a polygamist, like the most righteous man would be a polygamist, just as I would see a return missionary, sort of someone with status. Let's just talk really quick about how you got married in southern Utah. There was no temple until 1877 after Brigham Young had passed away. And of course, there were all these marriages being performed. Celestial marriage wasn't, at this time, just plural marriage. But it was restricted, quote, to those members of the church who are judged worthy of participation to the special blessings of the house of the Lord, end quote. So celestial marriage was a sort of higher marriage. Now, this is interesting to me because we talk about Joseph Smith always had this concept of like having the higher law. So Joseph was going to reinstate the higher masonry that regular masonry was sort of the low form and he was going to reinstate it. And John C. Bennett's spiritual wifery was a low form of living together, but he was going to reinstate it. And we see Brigham kind of carrying this on. So he sees elitism, this real actual elitism in practice as a sort of way to bring a higher law. We have this idea of a higher law. So we have second anointings. We have celestial law. We have plurality. We have these mission calls. These were considered given to people who were a little bit more special, a little bit more righteous. And of course, since the temple wasn't completed, it was kind of a messy system. The only place you could get married and sealed in the celestial marriage was the makeshift endowment house in Salt Lake City. And so that's why we always see, you know, these plural marriages happening in Salt Lake City and sometimes coming back with a new wife. Or if you were a young girl and you fell in love with an older man, you would journey with him all the way up to Salt Lake City and then your honeymoon would be spent coming home. So many, many, many honeymoons were spent on the trail coming home. There are some research that says uh, before 1880, two-thirds of all wives' experiences um, in St. George were polygamous. Two-thirds of the women. Now, it's a complicated subject when we talk about permission to enter polygamy. There are, there are a lot of uh, stories where you're going to get different, different examples of whether people gave permission or not. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. I want to talk about one of the main leading figures in St. George for a second. George A. Smith, not 
to be confused with George Albert Smith, who would be his son, George A. Smith. You can look him up online. He looks like a big, imposing figure, kind of like a second Brigham Young. He he was a really interesting character. Very He very much implicated in a lot of the violence, especially Mountain Meadows Massacre. And he had an interesting history. He would have no problem fulfilling the duty of the Mormon version of the everlasting gospel as he married 11 women who would make him the father of 20 kids. And, you know, like I said, he was implicated in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. The Paiute tribe that was familiar with him gave him the nickname of Nonchoko Witcher or takes himself apart after seeing him remove his wig to wipe his sweaty brow and then removing his false teeth and finally his glasses. He was a portly man, about 5'10", weighed a hefty 250 pounds, and he was only 57 when he died. He had this sort of bombastic speech style. He once said, quote, We breathe the free air, we have the best-looking men and handsomest women, and if they, the non-Mormons, envy us our position, well, they may, for they are poor, narrow-minded, pinch-backed race of men who chain themselves down to the law of monogamy, and we live and live all their days under the dominion of one wife. They ought to be ashamed of such conduct and the still fouler channel which flows from their practices, and it's not to be wondered at that they should envy those so much better understand the social relations, end quote. So he was saying monogamous really, like, they're jealous of us and they don't understand it, and uh, we live a much better lifestyle. And, of course, it's interesting because it, you see sort of scientists and uh, government officials in the East talking about, you know, in the late 1880s that polygamous offspring are, like, yellow and sunken in and unhealthy and small. And you have the opposite in Utah where these leaders are getting up and preaching, our children are healthier in polygamy. If you are a polygamous child, you're better looking. And it's just interesting to see those two kind of combatic rhetorics going on. George A. Smith has sort of the sordid history, but one of the things we don't talk about with him often was his wives. One of his, the most famous wives would be Bathsheba Wilson Bigler Smith. She was the fourth general president of the Relief Society for the church. And she would be a matron of the Salt Lake Temple and on the board of directors of the Desert Hospital and a leader in the Western United States women's suffrage movement. She married George in 1841 in Nauvoo, and at the time he was the youngest member of the Quorum of the Twelve. A cool thing about Bathsheba Smith, if you've seen that side portrait of Joseph Smith, it's like a sketch, and he's got like kind of the high collar and his nose sticking out, that is drawn by Bathsheba in her journal. And so I, I would say, go ahead and look that up. Bathsheba would say of her time in Nauvoo, quote, The people who had their houses burned fled into Nauvoo for shelter. Our house was filled. The temple was so far finished in the fall of 1845 that thousands received their endowments. I officiated for some time as a priestess, end quote. So she was really active in Nauvoo. She would stand by George A. Smith's side. You can read letters that she wrote to him. Very affectionate. She seemed very supportive all of her life. She would say about polygamy, quote, being thoroughly convinced, as well as my husband, that the doctrine of plurality of wives was from God, and having a fixed determination to attain to celestial glory, I felt to embrace the whole gospel, and that it was for my husband's exaltation that he should obey the revelation on celestial marriage. 
which was DNC 132, that he might attain to kingdoms, thrones, principalities, and powers, firmly believing that I should participate with him in all his blessings, glory, and honor. Accordingly, within the last year, like Sarah Vold, I had given to my husband's five wives good, virtuous, honorable young women. This gave them all homes with us, being proud of my husband and loving him very much, knowing him to be a man of God and believing he would not love them less because he loved me more. I had joy in having a testimony that what I had done was acceptable to my Father in Heaven. And you can read her uh, autobiography online. In addition to George A. Smith's uh, first wife, Bathsheba, he also married Lucy Smith, Nancy Clemens, Sarah Ann Libby, Hannah Maria Libby, those two were sisters, Zilpha Stark, and Susan E. West. And he would have over 20 children, um, 11 of whom were still living with him when he died. And... Just a side note about one of his wives, Hannah Maria Libby Smith. She has a famous historic house in Provo that you can go see. We're getting close to an hour, and I have a bunch of towns I want to talk to talk about, but St. George is a good one to start with. And, you know, George Albert Smith, or George A. Smith was uh, who they say, I mean, there's some controversy about where the name came from, but they consider him the patron, patron saint, and George A. Smith was a big, big deal in southern Utah, and you, someone you didn't want to mess with, as we see with his wife's very prominent position later on. So I'm going to encourage you to read the PDFs that I'm going to attach. There's a lot of research talking about the ages and the sort of movements in the cotton mission. And it's really important and good history. And a lot of work has been done to determine how the percentages and the amount of people living in southern Utah at the time, especially in St. George. So I would go ahead and read that important, important, important research. And you can tune in to our next episode, which we're going to be talking about Cedar City, Santa Clara, Orderville, and, and we're going to talk about some, some of the sort of violence, but this is a good precursor to understand why people are going south. So thanks for tuning in for this episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.